Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, I'm your host, Robin Mullins, and joining me today is a very special guest, longtime producer, first-time host, first-time co-host, I should say, Emily Cuggy. Hello, this is my nightmare. <laughs> uh, well, it's not mine. This is my dream. Um, long ago, before this podcast was even a twinkle in anyone's eyes, it was a twinkle in both of our eyes, and we independently went to No History's director and owner, Ryan Shackleton, and pitched a podcast and so we were then put together and thus notice history was born and yet you've never been on the podcast emily no i've never had a desire to co-host i'm a behind the scenes person but (laughs) today i'm not behind the scenes i'm on the stage and spotlight (laughs) is on you front and center yes it's great i'm so happy (laughs) truly i have longed for this day yeah no it's great so here we go here we go all right so (laughs) this is the second part of a two-part spooktacular podcast series and we've been talking about victorian kind of spookiness i guess is kind of is there a better term for what we're doing here uh today's episode is victorian spiritualism yes and the previous one was victorian death rituals and things so very victorian is kind of the common denominator here which leads to the question what are your victorian interests emily if any my entire apartment is decorated in hair wreaths, so that's, obviously <laughs> that's my my connection. <laughs> if only, if only we knew someone whose whose apartment actually was. I know, I know. Well, I I am a very big steampunk fan, and by very big, I mean I've I've read one author's teen steampunk various series, Gail Carriger, and um, they're they're quite wonderful, and I've. They're my guilty pleasure. I, I finished all of her various quartets that are in existence on my mat leave uh, pretty shortly into it. So I like that stuff. I've also seen The Young Victoria. Um, what, what else? What else is there? What else is it? Canada. Queen Victoria was the reigning monarch during uh, Confederation. Yeah. There's a giant cool statue of her in the Library of Parliament, which is currently closed, but it's there. Yeah, there's the Victoria and Albert Museum, which I've never been to, but would love to go. Yes. Ooh, the Victoria Museum, which is actually the Nature Museum in Ottawa. Yeah. And which we can see from our No History offices. Yes, we can. Yeah. Yeah, I used to live beside it. It looks like a castle, so oh, it, was, so beautiful. it was a very nice view. It is a really beautiful museum. I was there not so long ago because we took my son to see the dinosaurs and... We thought he'd be kind of afraid of the giant ones, but no, he just kind of looked into their mouths, into their open mouths with the giant teeth and looked like he was checking for gingivitis. He's brave. He's going he's to brave be a dentist. He's a, yeah, he's a dentist. <laughs> I mean, you can hear him making sounds in agreement. It's so true. he, I think, I think that's his calling. He's 100% on board. Well, without further ado, why don't we get into Victorian spiritualism? Okay. In 1848, two sisters in Hydesville, New York, sparked the modern spiritualist movement with one sound. With these knocks, Maggie and Kate Fox convinced their mother that the house was haunted. They convinced her that they could in fact communicate with the spirit cohabiting their old farmhouse, a spirit that they called Mr. Splitfoot, a nickname for the devil. 
Mrs. Fox decided to ask the spirit a series of questions and invited a neighbor over to witness the demonstration. Count to five, she asked, and the spirit knocked five times. Count to 15, and the spirit knocked again. When asked to identify the ages of those present, the spirit offered the correct number of knocks. Though Maggie and Kate would years later admit to the incident being a hoax, staged with apples on strings and other clever tricks, they had unwittingly laid the foundation for a phenomenon that would grip the United States and Canada in the ensuing decades, and arguably still today. I think that's like a pretty elaborate hoax. I don't have time for that. I don't it's even have very, time for anything in my life, let alone that. Very elaborate. And apparently they learned how to click their toe knuckles Ew. to make sounds loud enough that during a seance, it would sound like someone was knocking on the table or they could kind of project the sound so it sounded like it was happening throughout the room, which is kind of disgusting. But also dedication. But exactly. And it clearly worked because... yeah. It became a massive movement, and they started putting on shows. It was, it was a hoax that went too far. Yes, definitely, definitely too far. But I mean, clearly there was an appetite for it, right? Yeah, very interesting. So with that, we're going to go into the background of the Fox sisters and the birth of spiritualism. Word of the Fox family's spirit knocking spread quickly, as we've just discussed. Neighbors began asking for demonstrations, and soon the community became convinced that the spirit was that of Charles B. Rosna, a peddler who had reportedly been murdered in the home and buried in the cellar five years earlier. Ugh, spooky. Mm -hmm. There was no real evidence for this claim, despite a rumor that fragments of bone and hair had been found in the farmhouse basement. Some real uh, ooky spooky stuff there. Yeah, and apparently the fragments of bone weren't actually discovered until 1904. So it kind of became, it was a rumor that then potentially became fact, but at the time it was just a rumor. So it was again, part of this hoax that kind of spun out of control. Oh, do you think maybe they planted that stuff then? Maybe. <laughs> Cause I mean, they seem to have already established that they were very elaborate in the things that they did i wouldn't be surprised then if true potentially i'd love to know where two teenagers got bone and hair fragments or maybe i don't want to know (laughs) (laughs) nonetheless the overwhelming attention directed at the fox family led them to send maggie and kate to stay with the older sister leah foxfish in rochester The attention, however, followed them, and Leah took advantage of the situation, becoming a sort of manager for the sisters. When Quaker couple Isaac and Amy Post heard about the Fox sisters, they were intrigued. Like many others who became enthralled with the spiritualist movement, the Posts were motivated by the opportunity to communicate with lost loved ones at a time where lifespans were short and disease was an ever-present threat. Devoutly religious, spiritualism did not conflict with the post-Christian beliefs, so they were free to engage in seances and other methods of contacting the dead. Which they did. The posts invited the Fox sisters to a gathering at their home to demonstrate spirits' communication. Skeptics were assuaged by the examination of the sisters to ensure that they were not concealing any tricks or devices. And having by this time become well-versed in faking the rapping sounds with their toes, the girls passed the test. I mean, clearly they were doing a lot of practicing. Also, how do you discover that that's the way that you can do it? That's got to be some real arthritis later on in life. That's One would think. Also, how do you... I mean, I can crack my toe knuckles quite loudly. I still don't think that it would make sounds outside of my shoes. Yeah. And like carry through a hall. 
and where make they were people, putting on a demonstration. Yeah, and to be able to do it that many times in a row, like it's not really a thing I can do on demand. It doesn't always snap. Yeesh. It's a talent. I don't know if talent's the word. Yeah. <laughs> talent is putting it a little strongly. <laughs> After this first successful gathering, the Post rented a hall in Rochester where a crowd of 400 people flocked to witness the phenomenon for themselves. Word continued to spread, and Maggie and Kate were soon performing in front of large crowds in New York City. After teaming up with the alleged clairvoyant Andrew Jackson Davis, who was also given credit as one of the founders of modern spiritualism, the girls went on a professional tour to spread the word of the spirits. As many as 30 people would be in attendance for each seance. Spiritualism was a spectacle, a form of entertainment that exploded within a wider exhibitionary culture. Victorians were drawn to the strange and unknown. They loved cabinets of curiosities and flocked to shows put on by men like the famed circusman P.T. Barnum. Maggie, Kate, and Leah Fox all sustained careers as professional mediums or clairvoyants until 1888, when Maggie made a public confession denouncing spiritualism and admitting to the decades-long hoax she and her sisters had created. My sister Kate and myself were very young children when this horrible deception began, Maggie said. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. The sisters graduated from apple dropping to manipulating their knuckles, joints, and toes to make rapping sounds. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them, she explained. It's a very common delusion. And I guess it is something that if you want to believe something, you will be convinced. In, as we know, based off the internet. Yes. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> Look at the internet for yes. for all all the confirmation of this. It's true. I mean, yeah, not even just fake news, but like conspiracy theories, like YouTube. YouTube is rife with this stuff. If people want to believe something, you better believe that they're going to figure out a way to back up their their claims or their beliefs no matter how out there it seems. Yeah, and especially at a time when people in a seance want to be communicating with their loved ones they want to be convinced that they're speaking with a loved one yeah they're primed right yeah they're already they're going to think anything that's happening is kind of feeding into that so i wouldn't be surprised if sometimes things just happen like a sound would just happen something would fall or like you know it's it's in the victorian era probably a mouse or a rat was scurrying through the wall or made a sound or just there's all kinds of things the wind could have picked up it could be a rainy night and someone maybe left a window open and it, you know, crashes shut. Like, there's all kinds of things. A door creaking. There's so many spooky-ooky sounds. And any of those could also lend themselves. So once you have that power of suggestion, you don't really have to do much more than that. People will make those links themselves. Yeah, and when you're in the mindset of being in a seance and thinking that something's going to happen, anything that happens, you're going to connect it to a spirit. It's true. probably a specific spirit. Yeah. Delusion though it may have been, seances became a popular form of entertainment in their own right. Seances were held in public halls or in private homes. They were a common dinner party amusement, particularly the practice of table turning, whereby groups would gather around a table that would be tipped and even levitated by the present spirit. Newspapers reported on incidents beheld at seances, and the trance became particularly alluring as spectators ogled as mediums went into a trance, presumably possessed by a spirit. As seances and mediums became traveling spectacles, the spiritualist movement continued to spread. 
So here we can point out that there is a Canadian connection uh, with the Fox sisters specifically, who were in fact born in Belleville, Ontario. And after they became famous, they traveled back to Canada several times to visit another of their sisters, Elizabeth, who still lived in Ontario. While there, the sisters hosted a seance that captured the attention of Canadian author Susanna Moody and her sister Catherine Parr Trail. Susanna and Catherine became active members of the Canadian spiritualist community over the subsequent years. It was in the early period of the spiritualist movement that other methods of communicating with spirits developed that did not necessarily require the help of a medium. One of these was the now common Ouija board. While its origins are not entirely clear, the Ouija board was an extension of the talking board which Victorians used to speak to spirits. While early talking boards required that spirits spell out words completely, Ouija boards had shortcuts that allowed the spirit to indicate yes or no, which was much quicker for eager spiritualists to use when they wished to get in touch with the spirit. Also, you know, it makes it a little easier to pull off a ruse, I would say, if yeah. you can just do a yes or no, rather than having to like spell out every single thing, especially if it's a full sentence. What if this person's got a paragraph to say? It's true. I feel like you have to ask very specific questions. Probably. But I've never I've, done this. I also have never done it. I know people who have and they told stories about the Ouija board conjuring things and that's not something that I want to dabble in even not though for I, me I don't I don't think I believe in it no. but I don't want to test it because not for me once you unleash something you can't can't put un- it back in the box you can't un- unleash I've watched enough episodes of things I've seen Jumanji I've yes. seen and that's you know I mean that's not this that's the unscary version I feel Jumanji is the unscary version that I can handle and not the Robin Williams one, because that one's too scary, too real. I can handle the new remake with Jack Black and The Rock. And now on to spirit photography. So in our last episode, we did discuss uh, corpse photography. So that idea of taking photographs of the deceased and the many different types of photography that emerged with that, whether it be um, the corpse itself the actual act of death or, you know, the, the sleep version where they're, they're lying down on a couch or even having them hidden into the photo with the family as though they're still alive and just, you know, chilling, even though they'd be dead. Um, so this time around, we're going to be talking about how spirit photography was also a genre that was emerging during this time. During the period of spiritualism in the 1860s, the American Civil War led to a rise in spiritualism. Heavy casualties meant that there were many vulnerable mourners who bought into the big business of spirit photography. Similar booms in spirit photography occurred during the Spanish flu epidemic and the First and Second World Wars. Spirit photography was often taken during seances, and cameras were considered the ultimate scientific proof of life beyond death. Many believed photos could not be altered and were a neutral eye. These photographic tricks were usually done through double exposure, so they would insert a previously prepared positive glass plate uh, featuring the image of the deceased from a photograph or maybe a newspaper. And the double exposure technique not only captured the image of the client, so the person who was there to attend the seance and asking to communicate with a loved one, um, but it would also show the ghostly image from the prepared glass plate in front, so it would look like the person that they're wanting to communicate with is kind of superimposed onto the image. 
Other forms of this photography showed white orbs of light floating at seances or orbs with faces surrounding the medium. So again, this would be an orb and they would kind of superimpose the face of a specific person or a loved one into that orb so it looked like they were kind of floating in the air. And I will say that some of these things have not changed all that much because I have in the past, I can't remember exactly when, but I remember I had like a photograph back when you got photographs developed. Um, and it had like, you know, sometimes you get like those like little light spots and stuff in them. Yeah. And I had some friends who were like certain that that meant that a ghost was in the picture. And I don't, I mean, it was just, it was, who's to say? But I will say no. No, it wasn't. Yeah. I feel like we've lost out on a lot of speculation and wonder since digital photography has yeah, taken no, over. Man. So you don't get those tricks of the light anymore. Stupid, new, Sad. stupid, awesome, great cameras that we now have embedded in our phones. Psh, ruining yeah. everything. Ruining the wonder of yeah. it all. Can't, can't fake an ectoplasm. Nope. Which is when photographs of the physical manifestation of spirits are also imposed onto the photo. And it'll sometimes look like they used tissue of some sort or string. Hmm. So it's it's a weird mass that's coming out of the person pictured at the seance. And the spirit will be sometimes shown within that mass. It's kind of disturbing. So uh, if you are interested in knowing more, see Ghostbusters. Ectoplasm yes. and Ghostbusters. Yes. Either one. They both have ectoplasm. If uh, if Ghostbusters isn't your jam, though, and you would prefer some CanCon, maybe check out a Murdoch Mysteries episode, because they have one that features spiritualism, seances, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So check out Season 1, Episode 4, Elementary, My Dear Murdoch, if that interests you. Arthur Conan Doyle was a major spiritualist. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I mean, and he, he did not believe the Fox sisters. Hmm. Yeah. Look at him. It's because he, it's because he wrote about Sherlock. So of course he knew. Yeah. He was he was cracking that case. He was <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was too. He already had like that mindset, right? Because he was having to create these things that seemed otherworldly, but really had rational explanations. So he probably was like, oh no, no, I can figure out a million ways that they could be just doing this as a hoax. I've been writing books about this stuff since before you were born, ladies. <laughs> So we have a few spirit photographers who are going to highlight for you so you can kind of get a picture and a feel for this era as well as this genre. The first one is William H. Mumler. He was the first known spirit photographer. He set up a spirit photography studio in the 1860s and charged $10 a portrait, promising that people could see their departed loved ones. With inflation calculated, $10 in 1860 would have been about $309.35 in 2019. So he wasn't doing this out of benevolence. Would you pay $300 for that? No. Even if you believed it? No. I like my money. Yeah. I've got a kid. You can hear him in the background. It's I gotta true. support that kid. It's true. Mumler used double exposure techniques or composite images to put a ghost image on the portrait. Some of these ghost models were even draped in sheets. Mumler also had a feud with legendary oddities collector or entertainment mogul P.T. Barnum. And one of the most famous clients he had was Mary Todd Lincoln. Mumler took her photo in 1871, and P.T. Barnum used this as an opportunity to expose the fake by making his own version of the Mary Todd portrait. 
Some of the ghosts in the photos were recognized as residents of Boston that were still living. So, you know, that's going to really put a damper on things. <laughs> Others alleged that Mumler broke into clients' homes to get pictures of deceased relatives. Although later acquitted of fraud charges, Mumler's career was over after the trial. And Mumler inspired other spirit photographers like William Hope, who had a feud with Harry Houdini himself. Also, I think that's hilarious. He's charging, like, essentially $310, but he's not good enough to not have to break into your house in order to give you the product you paid him so handsomely for. He's charging you to steal from you. Yes, exactly. Give me $310 and I'll steal a photograph from your house, but I'll rifle through everything you own to find it. And in those days, they wouldn't have just been able to print off another copy of the photo, so he... He yeah. stole it. He took their photo of their loved one. Yeah, which he probably then cut it up to, you know, make it look like it was floating in an orb. So <laughs> they, they're not getting that back. Oh, Mumler. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Also, I love that some of his clients, like some of his um, models were just still walking around. You could just meet him on the street. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know you. Aren't you in that? Aren't you a ghost? Not a smart man. Well, but yeah. I mean, he, a crafty man. He was making $310 a pop, so. Yeah, he was. That's some crafty. smarts. <laughs> really applying those skills. Not well, but trying. Hustler. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a hustler. Yeah. Yeah. So, our next spirit photographer is my personal favorite, uh, T.G. Hamilton, who was from Winnipeg. Uh, shout out to Manitoba. And T.G. Hamilton was introduced to spiritualism through a friend in 1918, shortly before the death of his son Arthur during the Spanish flu epidemic. After his son's death, the family became desperate to reach him. Hamilton was a doctor, but he wanted to reach beyond death. By 1920, T.G. Hamilton had his family involved in experiments with the paranormal, which became quite famous. Their nanny, Elizabeth Poole, had also claimed to be a medium. They went from telekinetic and psychic experiments to seances. T.G. Hamilton's photos used ectoplasm, uh, which was seen to be the physical manifestation of spirits, and it appeared through the orifices of the medium's body. So there would be white masses coming through the medium's mouth or eyes, and they would only be visible on camera. They wouldn't be something that was physically happening in the room during the seance. Thank goodness. Yeah, that would be very disturbing. Yeah. And you also couldn't fake that. One would hope. Yeah. Sometimes faces would be visible on the top of the ectoplasm. And you can see T.G. Hamilton's photos uh, at the University of Manitoba Archives, where his collections are held. One of my classes, uh, I did a class on the supernatural and popular culture in my undergrad, which... (laughs) She looks so proud right now, you guys. Yeah, which, if you know me, is not surprising that I did this. And we spent an afternoon going through T.G. Hamilton's photos. Uh, University of Manitoba Archives has a cool video on their YouTube channel, which is basically a slideshow of the images set to creepy music, which makes it about 100 times scarier than it is. And don't watch it at night. (laughs) We know it's not real. We know that, you know... He's, he's faking it. Power of suggestion, man. Exactly. So Hamilton held seances for many notable guests, including William Lyon Mackenzie King, not a huge shocker if you know anything about King, 
and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He comes up again. Mm-hmm. From records made before his death, it appears as though Hamilton truly believed in what they were doing and that they were truly reaching the dead. Other scholars with medical backgrounds were also dabbling in paranormal studies during this time, and Albert von Schrenknotzing teamed up with a medium named Eva Carrière, who manifested ectoplasm. His book, Phenomena of Materialization, a Contribution to the Investigation of Mediumistic Teleplastics, found that ectoplasm was not only real, but something called teleplastic, a material created with psychic and spirit energy. Eva Carrière was found to be a fraud using magazine cutouts, pins, and string to create the ectoplasm images. A scientific analysis of a sample of ectoplasm was found to be chewed paper. Hamilton died of a heart attack in 1935. It's unclear who was creating the phenomenon for Hamilton because it seems like he truly believed it and wasn't himself responsible for creating these images of ectoplasm in the seances. He spent considerable money on the experiments and the photographic equipment, and many believe that his wife and daughter were encouraging the manifestations to make him feel better about the passing of his son. I just think that's quite heartbreaking to... I don't know if that's the kind of thing that you want to feed for a person, to have them believe that something that they're doing is real if you're just faking it for them. I don't know. That's... That's sad. But if it makes him feel better. But at what Maybe cost? it's not that bad. No, it's bad. It's a bit bad. It's real bad. So as we mentioned a few moments ago, William Lyon Mackenzie King, he can't have an episode about Victorian spiritualism and seances without touching on William Lyon Mackenzie King. Oh boy. Let's get into it. He is my favorite prime minister. Is it because of this? Yes. Of course it is. Uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King was Canada's longest-serving prime minister. He was prime minister from 1921 to 1930, and again from 1935 to 1948. So prime minister during the Second World War, um, during some you know major major times in Canadian history. Yeah. And King was also a practicing spiritualist who communicated or claimed to communicate with his mother, siblings, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, whose house he lived in, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and his dogs, who he had three dogs, all Irish terriers, named Pat the First, Pat the Second, and you guessed it, Pat the Third. Not very inventive, Mr. King. No. Pat the dog. I don't know. So they kept it a secret for the sake of his political career, but news came out within years of his death in 1950 that he had, in fact, attended and been a huge aficionado of seances. He not only attended, but also held seances and used Ouija boards to communicate with the dead. He lost many members of his family over the course of a couple years, a brother, a sister, and his mother, and this series of deaths and loss led him to becoming interested in seances. He worked with a number of mediums, both in Canada as well as in London, England, to communicate with different spirits, uh, including his family members and apparently Pat. Yeah, what would Pat say? Did someone have to like woof? Like, how do you communicate with your dog? Yeah, Pat would bark. That's maybe. But like, was it a happy bark? Was it? How do you know? I don't. I just. I have a lot of questions. Some debate exists whether he used his communications with the dead for advice for affairs of state, in particular during the Second World War, um, perhaps with Sir Wilfrid Laurier or FDR, if he was allegedly communicating with their spirits. 
And his occult habits were kept a secret, again, to avoid the accusation that he was receiving advice from beyond the grave. Because I can imagine that that might not go over all that well with voters. No. Yeah, you know, the public may not appreciate that, although who's to say? According to friends, William Lyon Mackenzie King never crossed that line of holding seances in order to get political uh, insight and advice. However, the truth itself is unclear. One side of the debate reported that Sir Wilfrid Laurier, as well as FDR after his death, would provide him counsel on matters related to the Second World War and foreign affairs. This side of the debate contends that spiritualism was such an integral part of his life that he would be unable to separate it from his political decision-making. Which, you know, fair. If he's, if he's doing it this much, and with these specific figures, it's not, it's not out of the blue or crazy to think that potentially he was looking for some help in his decisions. Laurier House originally lived in by Sir Wilfrid Laurier and later a residence of William Lyon Mackenzie King makes many subtle nods to his connection to spiritualism to this day, uh, such as the crystal ball in the library, um, the room where he carried out his seances was unfortunately not well documented. So when the home was remodeled as a museum and they needed to put an HVAC system in, they put the HVAC system where the seances were held. So you can no longer go in, which I was disappointed to learn when I went to Laurier House and was, you know, expecting to go into the seance room. Or is that maybe just too perfect a coincidence to be not coincidence at all? I don't know if they have much at um, Kingsmere Estate. Oh, I don't know. However, if this is something that interests you, the haunted walks do actually have a haunted walk at Kingsmere. So you can go, and I'm sure they are rife with stories that they can tell you about all kinds of things, including very specific details about William Lyon Mackenzie King's seances and any kind of things that transpired there if you go on that walk. So that's a plug to them. Also last year, we did our Halloween episode with the Haunted Walks of Ottawa. So if you want and you're interested in hearing some spooky ooky stories, go back into our archives and check out last year's episode. So thank you so much for joining us today as we talked about uh, seances and spiritualism and all of the interesting kind of weavings that it has within Canadian history. You know, we've got some people from Belleville, Ontario. We've got hoaxes. We've got photography. We've got a prime minister thrown into the mix. And hopefully if this doesn't give you all that you're craving as far as spooktacular content, you will go back and either re-listen to or enjoy it for the first time, that episode that we just mentioned from The Haunted Walks. It's a good one. And they also have a podcast, so if you're interested in getting even more content, feel free to take a listen to their stuff. It's also very good. Now you're in the know. Thanks so much for joining us, Emily. Thank you. I I feel like I should thank you for having me, even though, you know... (laughs) We co-produced this together. (laughs) Was it as much of a nightmare as you had expected? It wasn't. It wasn't. And if ever there was an episode that I would join for, spiritualism makes Uh, sense. And we should also include that while Emily has not necessarily spoken on other episodes, she has been in the room for some of the recordings. So it's not like she just has been banished from the podcast. I I like to lurk in the background. And today I emerge from the shadows and into the light. She is the orb of light of this podcast. Yes. If we were a photograph, it would be myself and Keely 
Maybe Nick. Maybe he'd be like fading because he's been on the road a lot. Yeah. And then it would be an orb of light, which is Emily. With my face that Robin had to break into my house to steal Of course, steal a yeah. And you had to pay me $310 yes. to, in order for me to produce. Notice History is a no history podcast. We are produced by myself, Emily Cuggy, And myself, Robin Mullins. Today's researchers were Cassandra Moss, Skyly Storm Hogan, Samantha Clark, and me. I was like, I was the other one. I was like, who was the other one? It was me. These okay. are the best credits ever. And me. Yeah. Our audio editor will also be myself. For more information on today's topic, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast or check us out on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help out the show, consider leaving us a review. 